I was going to tell you like back in the day, you would just, your trash, you would just throw it off the cliff and <laughs> yeah. same with the human waste. Yeah. It just goes, but you would go clean it up after you'd go with a trash bag and pick up anything you saw. So with as many climbers, it was a great system, wow. but people were getting hit eventually when there was more people. So yeah. Now you've got to bring it all up. It's changed a lot. You got to bring the trash up with you. Gee, so you're like yeah. little doggy bags and just carrying yeah, it all yep, the way to the yeah. top. Well, you don't want to miss this interview. We're talking to Calder Stratford about climbing El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. This is the type of climbing that takes several days where they carry all their gear up. And they sleep and live on the, on the rock for the whole time. It's it's kind of unbelievable. I'm going to be processing this conversation for quite a while. Calder is an amazing ambassador or representative or spokesperson for this, uh, this sport. And I just couldn't be more excited to share this conversation with you. This is a, These are a lot of the questions I've had for a long time and finally had someone that sat down who could answer them. Uh, speaking from firsthand experience. So I know you're going to love this. Let's get right to it. When I was a kid, I would go to like the public library and go to the magazine section because it was so much more fun. And I would look at the pictures of, I think it was Rock and Ice magazine, oh, yeah. maybe climbing. And I would yeah, just, I don't ones. think I'd even read it. I would just stare at those pictures kind of in disbelief. And at the time I was thinking that was like a new thing people were doing. I have no idea, right. but a lot of those pictures, of course, were Yosemite from then yeah. until now. I've never been to Yosemite, but I'm telling you, I feel like some kind of connection to it. And I've never even been there. Kind of like, yeah. like New York City or the pyramids. It's like right. this, this place that I'm like so glad <clears throat> exists. I feel a connection to it almost just by being an earthling, you yeah. know? Yeah. So uh, I would love to know what it means to you. So maybe start with your first trip there and kind of how you got involved at Yosemite. And then I'd really like to learn more about the park and the whole culture there but sure you've been going there for a long time so maybe kind of start at the beginning yeah well um first time i went to yosemite i was 16 years old um and you know it's kind of like a fixture in the climbing community like it's like mecca you know it's like a place that if if you're into climbing it's i mean people come from all over the world i mean when you go to yosemite to climb there's people from europe and Asia. And I mean, it's like those walls there, there's nothing like it in the world, you know, mm -hmm. especially with that kind of Southern California, nice weather, um, yeah. pretty easy access. So yeah, I was 16 years old, uh, when I first went and like you, I, I'd been climbing since I was 11 and looking at magazines and books and all those things. And like nothing prepared me uh, for coming around the corner and seeing like how big and massive these walls are. I mean, so your first trip was a climbing trip. Then you went there at yeah. 16 to, to climb. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I went, I met up with a, a friend from Southern California and it was in March. It was a little bit early season. Um, and we attempted a route on El Capitan and, we got like three quarters of the way up and then just got stormed in for multiple days. And we ended up, uh, bailing, we call it like retreating, 
um, which took a couple days just to get down. I'm going to slow this down a little bit and I want to just make sure I understood that. So you're 16 and how old's yeah. your buddy and you guys go there for the first time. Is it just you guys or is and yeah. you're no cap? Is that, did I yeah. understand that right? Yeah. Um, he was in his mid twenties. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, Craig Hobart, good guy. And he had climbed El Capitan once before. So he was kind of like the more experienced climber. Holy smokes. Um, what, what was your, is your family really into climbing? So like the, the culture was already in place or are no. people like freaking out back at home knowing, or do they not know what you're doing? Cause is, it still they, feels pretty extreme to me. Yeah. I don't feel like they totally No, There's no climbing in our family. I got into it through the boy Scouts. Um, when I was like 11 and 12, I grew up in Southern California and Lake Arrowhead, the mountains of San Bernardino. And, um, I went climbing down like by Lake Paris. It's just, they call it big rock. It's just kind of small granite outcropping and learned to climb there and just got totally hooked, you know? So, um, wow. But yeah, I'm just, when I was 16, I was, I was up to just nonsense. This is like (laughs) an attempt like that again, like multiple days is such an undertaking and when you were 16, obviously you knew what you were up against. Um, yeah. But maybe what was that really like when you were kind of getting up there? Was there, was it a little, did it feel like a, a reckless thing or did it feel like that was the step you were at with your climbing or? No, I felt like that's where I was at. I mean, I was like obsessive about it since I was like 12 and yeah. kind of always with an eye of that type of climbing. It's called big wall climbing and kind of the, quintessential big wall is El Capitan, you know, I mean, it's like whenever you talk about, um, roots and what's next, I mean, it's kind of a goal for a lot of people is, is to climb something on there, you know? So, um, describe the process of bailing. That's something I've always felt about climbing that there kind of is no way out. (laughs) It's like only one way to go, but maybe describe what it means to bail because apparently there is. There is, it's a lot of times it's harder than going up, you know, especially depending where you are on the cliff and some routes, it would be almost impossible. This particular route, if anyone knows it was Zodiac and, um, what we were able to do is like, you know, you, when you're climbing up a cliff, you're kind of like, you have this like arsenal of tools, you know, that you're kind of you're reading the crack and you're placing this gear and um, that's kind of how you, you make upward progress and protect yourself against falling and things like that. So on the way, if you're going to go down, one of the challenges is, is that it's so steep. I mean, much more steep than vertical. So like if you were to just drop a rope length, like 200 feet and rappel to the end of the rope, some sections of the cliff, you could be 30 or 40 feet away from the cliff. So you wouldn't be able to get to the next anchor and repeat the process. So kind of what you do is, um, someone will lower you. And as you're being lowered, you kind of kick in and out of the cliff and place gear in the cracks and clip the rope in so that as you're, as you're lowering, you're, you're staying close to the cliff face. And then you get to an anchor and then you have the person above you would lower the haul bag. Um, and then they would rappel down the rope that you lowered on 
and take the equipment out of the crack. And then you kind of pull them into the anchor and then, you know, you pull your ropes down from that point and then you repeat that like, you know, 15 times or something to get down depending on how high up you are. So yeah, it's, um, it's a process. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you only communicating with your buddy just by kind of shouting and yelling? Yeah. You're, Cause you're, you're oftentimes, I don't know how far apart are you at times, hundred feet or 50 feet or maybe not that far. <laughs> um, well, a rope length is like 165 feet to 200 feet. And so, you know, when someone's just starting out a pitch, that's like a rope length basically. Yeah. You know, they can be as far as 200 feet away. Um, so yeah, a lot of yelling, but it's also kind of this script that you're, you're both familiar with. Um, like if you've climbed with a particular partner a lot, there's not a lot, whole lot of communication. I mean, you know, you know what to expect and they know what to expect and, you know, you kind of work really well as a team. What about that moment where you kind of decide to bail on the whole climb because someone's at the top, you know, unable to pass like an obstacle or something. And is that single person making the decision or then you come down and let the other guy take a swing at, or, or how, how do you make a big decision like that on the side of the cliff? Yeah, it's, it's something you talk about together. It's funny. Like, I mean, people will go to any length to like get to Yosemite. I mean, maybe fly halfway across the world and, you know, take weeks off of work and get the right equipment. And then it's funny when you get up there, it's such an unnatural feeling and pretty scary that like you could drop a toothbrush and go down, you know? I mean, it's very common when you're like just starting out, I would say more than half the parties, if they're on like their first or second or third LCAP attempt, they'll probably bail, you know, like 50, oh. 50 chance, you know? Oh. Um, but no, it's something you talk about in our case, I was in high school and it was spring break and we were kind of pinned up there in a storm and running out of time and he had to go back to work. So it was like, well, you know, I got yeah, it was go to weather school. that shut you guys down. Yeah, I guess, so. yeah. So we ended up coming down. When you're dragging, I can't like you said, you have this toolkit or this arsenal of gear, uh-huh. and you're you're dragging it up the mountain, but you're not actually like carrying it up the mountain. Does it kind of stay in a bag, and then you like pulley it up, or could you describe that how much yeah. gear and how it, actually that stuff kind of gets moved up and fastened and anchored, and how you're supposed to climb with that much? equipment around. I never really understood that. Yeah. So there's like, there is the tools that you use in the cracks, like to, you kind of read the rock. I mean, I kind of say with climbing, there's like two aspects. There's the physical part of it where you're, you're trying to make like upward progress, you know, and then there's this other kind of mechanical aspect where you're trying to make it safe. You're trying to read the cracks and protect it the best you can. So those tools that you use to, to protect, um, the climb that you have on you and it can be, it can be depending on the route. I mean, you can have 20, 30 pounds of Mm -hmm. equipment. Um, and then there's everything else like water, food, your sleeping equipment that gets hauled up in a bag. Um, they call haul bags or pigs. Those get hauled up rope length by rope length. And it's done with like, um, 
pulleys and mechanical advantages. It's, it's all very kind of like, um, mechanical and, and sometimes they're too heavy for one person to do. So you need to wait for the second person to get there and then they counterweight the, the line. And then, you know, but as you get higher on the route, you've drunk more water, eat more food and it gets lighter and lighter. Wow. So, um, people have been climbing El Cap for, I don't know what, let's say like 75 years or maybe yeah. years now. I don't yeah. know. Um, and there's probably a, a lot more traffic than I realized going up and down there. So talk about what, Im- and I'm sure there's an impact on the rock, but I know you're like hammering things in a lot of times and yeah. what, what's that like? I mean, just trying to picture is the route kind of never the same twice? In other words, like, does it change every time after another team goes up or is it, are there some things that you yeah. can just count on like the rising sun? Like we can always wedge here or what, what happens to the rock over, you know, years of this? Yeah. So the newer, the newer, a new, the newer, the route and the harder it is, I would say that it changes with every ascent, huh. but there's also climbs that, you know, the one, some of the first ones, to be done that they're, they're very consistent. And you mentioned like pitons, like hammering pitons. There's been a shift away from that because it it does scar the rock a little bit, but there's also this technology now, they call it clean climbing where like you don't have to use a hammer. In a lot of cases you can use like equipment that goes in with no hammer and doesn't affect the rock at all. Um, I actually brought some if you want to see it. Oh, yeah. Some let's of the see. equipment. So yeah. Okay. What talking about. Okay. Okay. So, like, this is a piton right here. Okay. Huh. Uh, and this is made for like a crack the size of like a dime. So right. it, it kind of, you hammer it in, you know, and maybe it sticks out like that far. So it's kind of, it's a piton, but it's also kind of a hook, you yes. know. I see. And so it, it can hold, you know, your body weight, maybe a little bit more. Um, and so kind of on the hardest routes, you use a lot of these. Um, and yeah, you know, like repeated ascents, sometimes you can just even hand place that, which doesn't affect the rock, you know, because someone's hammered it before you and it just kind of fits in there. Perfect. Then you can clip a carabiner to right here. So, so when you're, when you're doing these climbs, like and with that, what's that, did you say it's called a piton? Yeah, they call them peckers. A peckers. Okay. Yeah. But it how is often, a piton. It's a, a type of piton. How, how often do you put like all your body weight on just like one pecker like that or something? Is, you know, when I'm doing anything at all risky, I'm like always like getting like 14 backup plans. Yeah, and stuff, yeah. But I'm sure that can't always happen. So is every anchor you're putting in sort of like your life will depend on it at some moment and you kind of or are, is there a lot of redundancies because that that thing looks tiny that's the yeah the, they're the, tiny i mean this is kind of like on the smaller end of it yeah it's like a um, chain, like a bottle opener so like the anchors where you're gonna haul your bags and you know there's a bullet you know both people are there those are typically like they're very solid you know Um, you wouldn't make an anchor with just like a couple of these, you know, Mm -hmm. you have like bigger equipment or maybe some bolts that are in the rock, Mm -hmm. but there's some climbs where you would use 30 of these on a Mm -hmm. rope length and, and maybe they won't hold a fall, but so it's, it's possible that like you could, if, if one came out, you could 
fall a long ways and like unzip them kind of yeah you kind of unzip them yeah um but you know most roots like you know maybe you have a string of something like this and then some other equipment that's much stronger that can hold a fall like um these are called like nuts or chalks okay yeah, you may have seen these they work like in constrictions in the rock so like yeah. if it you know and they're very strong i mean that's that, that will hold thousands of pounds. Right. So, yeah. So you can and, count on those ones. And they're easy to take out and they don't hurt the rock. And, um, and then, you know, these are like kind of the latest and greatest, like, um, they're called cams, uh -huh. you know, they're, they're made, you don't actually need like any sort of constriction. Like you can have a parallel sided crack and these, these will work just fine. Um, and these, yeah, a, a well-placed one of these will hold thousands of pounds as well. So like if you were zippering out some other equipment, like this would hold, or if you needed to make an anchor, this is very strong. Huh. You know, you'd put three or four of those in. Um, what yeah. about overnight? I, I'm obviously you like really anchor up then, but I'm thinking about just the whole setup and also in terms of resting, is all of the resting on a big climb like that just in your harness, like for a, a kind of a second, or are there places where you can kind of, where there's like huge cracks where you can actually like stand up or sit down or take a real breather, or are you just pretty much in your shoes or in your harness the whole time? It depends on the route, but, um, there are some natural ledges on El Capitan. Um, but there's also some routes with like nothing bigger than five or six inches to stand on, you know? So you're, yeah, you're in your harness for a week, you know, wow. it feels really good to get to the top and, walk yeah. around. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. Are people still like uncovering or accomplishing new routes on El Cap or at this point, is it pretty much all been like, you know, dialed in? They, there are people and it's, it's pretty few and far between at this point because a lot of the obvious lines have been done. And sometimes there's variations like, you know, they'll go on an existing route and then oh. do five or 600 feet of new stuff and come back in. But there's pro there's over a hundred routes on El oh. Capitan and yeah, there's, it's pretty much been done. Although I'm always shocked that <laughs> someone can have a spotting scope and come up with some line that I never even saw. So, um, how does like the, I, I want to, let's just talk about a little bit about the park, but I guess we'll stick on El Cap. Like, yeah, there's so many people, tourists, hikers and dog walkers and bird watchers and, all these folks, um, there's probably a lot of people on the rock at the same time. How does like the process work? Maybe it's changed since you started. And I guess we should let people know you've, you've been back a lot of times. So maybe, maybe kind yeah. of before you go into this part, just talk about the rest of your El Cap, um, trips. But I'm just wondering, like, do you start a route knowing nobody else is on it? <clears throat> Are there always a few people on any given route like Zodiac and you just assume it's, you know, everybody moves at a similar speed. How does, yeah. it, how does some of those things work? But, but maybe first kind of take us back to your, your 16, you, you made it back for school and then, and yeah. then what was your next trip? Like, and, and I guess, how did you feel about that one? Yeah. I mean, I, I came back, um, that summer. So, I mean, I was there when I was 16 for spring break. And then that summer I moved there and I don't know if you heard of the term dirt bagging it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like derogatory for climbers. It's kind of right. like, um, so I lived in my car, you uh -huh. know, and you just kind of like 
do everything you can to keep the overhead low and just climb, you know? Mm. So I spent the summer there. Um, and yeah, I was able to do a couple different routes on El Capitan that summer and met up with good partners and, um, had some good mentors, you know, people older than me and more experienced that kind of like showed me the ropes and things like that. Wow. Um, that was probably, uh, pretty helpful i would imagine yeah yeah because i mean you know like anything you can study and talk to people and Mm -hmm. but there's just a certain amount of like being shown how to do it and then just the mental part of where you think you can't do it but someone who's done it a bunch you can go with them and they're like no you got this this is no big deal like Wow. Are, we'll get I through mean, this. Some, like, some sports, there's a lot of like, I'll say like localism, but like, for example, surfing, people are very protective. They don't want to like let yeah. you into their lineup or whatever. Sure. What's climbing like? Are these, is there, are people, uh, I don't know, hesitant with like newcomers kind of showing up or is it a different no, type of vibe? That's not the sense I've experienced. I mean, like there, there have been like moments in climbing history where there's a little bit of that kind of like, uh-huh. protectionism surf vibe but like for the most part i feel like it's a great community where like people encourage other you want other people to do well and uh. um it's called we, we call it beta but like you talk to other climbers and you're like oh yeah we were up there we found this watch out for there's a loose block on this pitch like be right. careful like good community a l- lot of good mentors you know i mean it's kind of like um, you definitely feel a sense of duty to like, you've got to yeah. like show and help new people. It's not just every person for themselves, you know? What about the park itself? Because I know some national parks, you can't even like park like yeah, the no. road without people like towing you and hassling you. And I'm talking about these like workers. I mean, I know it's their job or whatever, but yeah. it, they're not the most like welcome place for just kind of like go explore. Like you, you, yeah. I don't know. It's like, you gotta, you gotta mind your P's and Q's, but yeah. I've always wondered about Yosemite because these climbers, I know they'll stay there and live in cars. How, how does that work with just the, I don't know, the national park side of it and the tourism and the government workers who are all coming? Yeah. Together? Well, there's, it's changed a lot. I mean, when I was a kid, I spent three summers living there and I mean, like I didn't hide it, you know? And like, we had, we had like illegal keys to the showers at Yosemite Lodge and like to the ice machine. And it was kind of <laughs> like this interesting ecosystem where we were, you know, living off the National Park Service a little bit and just living you're, you're in part of the wildlife there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, <and> elk. <laughs> there's a, there's a camp called Camp Four um, in Yosemite, which is kind of like, it's, it's nicer now, but like back then it was like, the driest, dirtiest campground with no showers and, you know, a few picnic tables, but really just made for tents. And that's where most of the climbers lived and hung out. Man. Yeah. You could have a podcast just on the tricks of like, uh, living in boulder (laughs) fields. And some people lived outside the Awani hotel. I I guess they've renamed it the majestic, but like, you know, wake up and then, go get tea inside that they put out for the customers and the continental breakfast. Use, yeah. Use the nice restrooms and yeah, the night yeah the exactly. 
but it's gotten much harder. It's a, it's in much more crowded and um, a lot more law enforcement. I mean, like, you know, these are like park rangers that probably got into it because they loved nature. Right. And uh, yeah. yeah, now they're carrying firearms and having to enforce rules and things like that. Yeah. Are you required now or even then to like get a permit or something to go to the rock and climb? Or is that part of it still kind of just wild west? You know, it was wild west forever until last year they started a permitting process. Um, Yeah, kind of crazy in a park like Yosemite, you know, where uh, there's rules for everything. Yeah. But for whatever reason with climbing, maybe it's been around so long and the community has been pretty good about like cleaning up after themselves and making sure there's not too many people on one route. And cause there's, there's maybe like four or five routes out of the hundred that receive 90% of the traffic, yeah. you know, they're easier, they're very classic and that's yeah. where most people go for their, to have that experience. Um, but yeah, now there is a permitting process through the park. What it's happens still, if someone's coming down and then somebody else is coming up at the same time? Does that ever happen? Not usually because you, you end up hiking off the top. Oh. So you're not rappelling down the Oh, I'm thinking face. if somebody bails though. Like you got you got oh. wrecked by a storm or something. Yeah, it's that's pretty rare too. I mean, but you know, in our case, when we bailed, um, there was a British couple and we gave them like our food, you know, our leftover food. And they were just like on cloud nine. because they <laughs> well, knew You they like met them on the wall, like while you were well, coming down. Yeah. As we were coming down, we came right past the anchor where they were. And, oh, uh, wow. I remember, I remember I had some like mandarin oranges, you know, in a <laughs> tin can. And the lady was just like, she had been in, in their portal edge, you know, for three or four days with that storm anyway. So oh. yeah, they were very happy to so it happens, but that's pretty rare. And, uh, but you can like squeeze past someone. Like if you're on the same crack, you can still kind of move around each other without too yeah, much it's, trouble. Yeah, it's a cluster, but you can do it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So anyways, you spent three summers there. I'm assuming you made it to the top uh, probably multiple times at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how many times I've done it, but like, you know, 15 to 20 times. And I kind of just like at this point in my life, like, I'll go back, you know, every couple years and, you know, it's mostly about just like disconnecting, meeting yeah. up with good friends and just kind of hanging out up there. And yeah. yeah, it feels like such a big part of my youth and, you know, yeah, it's really, really fun to go back. I can't imagine the connection you feel to not just the park, but the rock itself and sort of, yeah. the, it's like you hear, an, I hear an old song and I'm like brought back. I can't imagine yeah. like something like that and touching it and being like, wow, yep, this is it still here. Nothing, yep, <laughs> nothing changed. Does it, you know, things are scary when they're new and they're scary when you don't understand them fully. What, how scary is it to do this climb now for you? I know, I, I know you did it just a couple years ago and yeah. like, is there still a level of, Fear? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I think part of it's just like, I'm older, you know, I'm not as in good a shape as I was in my teens and twenties. And so that adds an element that's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, mentally, I'm probably stronger than I was, you know, just the fact that I've done it enough and I've spent some time up there that like, 
that's a little easier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really fun to go back. I mean, like super fun for me to go back and spend a week. And <laughs> the challenging, most challenging part is the park has changed so much that like, I really just try and like drive in at night, huh. get my stuff to the base and start climbing. And then when I'm finished, I just leave as quickly as I can. Cause it, I want to like keep it in my mind the way it was, you know, it was very what, different. What other ways has it changed? You said there's like armed Rangers now moving around, <laughs> yeah. but is a lot there of other parts of the, of the park that have changed a lot? I think the volume of people, you know I mean? They just, you don't make new national parks and open yeah. spaces. And yet there's like, there's more and more people, people are traveling more from overseas. And I think there's just more interest in the outdoors, you know? So like, it's very, very busy, you know, like I think to get a campground, uh, I mean, you gotta be like six months ahead and like, you know, almost like Napster on, on <laughs> eBay or something where you have to like have software to like get in and get a spot to get a little campsite. So yeah, it's yeah. changed a lot. I feel lucky to have experienced it before it got oh, too crowded. No kidding. Know? I mean, what you experienced was basically what people were experiencing in the seventies and eighties yeah, and probably the 50s yeah. and sixties. It probably hadn't, I mean, I don't know. I may, maybe those guys would say a different, tell a different story, but yeah. I'm sure it's, you know, made some, leaps and bounds changes since the 90s yeah yeah for sure absolutely probably to some extent like i got started i told you i've never been there and believe me i have all these expectations of what i think it would be like i feel like i know it just from looking so many pictures sure. but anyways these campgrounds and stuff in a lot of california you go to and it, it can be a disappointment when you kind of realize there's like these these spaces are so small I it's know. like right next to a road like one time we went at a campground i can't remember where it was um in Southern California on the beach. And it was like literally right next to the freeway. It was like, yeah, the campground was right there. And I'm just in terms of expectations and people going to these places for the first time, I'm sure that a lot of these camping experiences are not exactly like underneath half dome, you know, looking at the whole Valley from your window of your tent there. I mean, you would not be disappointed in the scenery. Like you'd be blown away. I mean, it's an amazing place and really pretty. Um, the crowds, yeah, it's it, it can wear on you. But, you know, sometimes if you didn't experience it before, you just, you have no frame of reference and it just is amazing. I yeah. see that with like the town I live in, like it's blown yeah. up in a similar way. And it's like the people that move here, pretty happy, you know, they're just yeah. happy. And it's the people that have like seen it change. And they're just like, oh, it used to be this way or that way. Grumps. But <laughs> yeah, a good solution for Yosemite is like, don't go in the summer. Okay. You know, it's just like, go in early spring the waterfalls will be going yeah yeah you'll have to wear a jacket but um so if no. someone like me who's not going to climb anything what i, I it, there's hikes there are there is a trail up to the top of half dome is that where like the more yeah. type trail is what what are some of the things that people do when they go to yosemite for a you know long weekend or something yeah you could um you can hike half dome if it, it's pretty long i think it's 12 miles um, and some pretty technical, you know, when you go up the cables at uh-huh. the end, I mean, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, but more than really just a pretty. Hike. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's on the spicier end of hiking, but yeah. still it's not like you're roped up or anything. Yeah. Um, there's all the waterfalls, you know, you've got like Vernal Falls and, yeah. um, Bridevale Falls and 
upper Yosemite falls, lower Yosemite falls. Um, there's a lot to see. There's glacier point apron. And then the architecture is really cool too. I mean, kind of the, that golden age of California, you know, that these, like the Awani hotel, again, it's been renamed because of a trademark lawsuit, but, um, really beautiful architecture and some of the buildings are really nice. I don't know what the name of that, like California mountain, Sierra mountain feeling architecture style is, but it's amazing. You know, Disneyland like did a good job recreating it in their park and it's like the smoky bear feeling. And it's like, it's, I, I would, I actually can't picture that hotel. So I'm going to look it up when we're done. I know what you're talking about. Even yeah. the signs themselves just like convey this feeling, this kind of natural park. Yeah. Smoky bear, uh, energy. That's just yes. so like warm and classic somehow. Right. Yeah. The vibe is very good. I mean, I, you'll have to fact check me on this, but I don't know if you've ever seen the shining where they have that hotel that's yeah. at Mount hood, Oregon. It's the same architect who designed oh. the Awania Hotel. Oh, and it's cool. just like, it's really grand, you know, it's just like huge logs and open spaces and all this stonework. And I mean, it's it's spectacular. That, yeah. There's something about that. It's like it's like the best and most grand and beautiful that, that man can create and build and not compete, but you put that like adjacent to nature, the most beautiful, uh, natural valley or you know one of these kind of yeah. wonders of the world and it you you come away with like just inspiration it's a really inspiring i guess from all sides and then you get great weather and you got like yeah the, the trifecta right totally no it's uh it's yeah so the architecture is cool too worth looking at and you know um i've been able to eat in the dining hall a couple different times of the awani and yeah you feel like you've gone back in time it's really cool well, that's really cool. I've always imagined the guys climbing these uh, these things are just absolute mental psychopaths. I'm glad they're actually normal and really nice guys like you in terms of just how intense it must be. I always thought these guys must just be another species, but um, I, I can, I'm, I'm happy to have uh, heard that from the horse's mouth that yeah. it's actually just a bunch of smart and uh, motivated Guys, so anything we we didn't cover on Yosemite or climbing before we move on? Anything you want to leave the well, people with? Just on that thought, I mean, I think it's like a lot of things where like from the outside, it seems reckless and, yeah. and dangerous. And for me, and I know a lot of my friends that, that do this type of climbing, it's you're trying to make it as safe as possible, you know? Yeah. So you're trying to like couple your experience and skill and equipment and kind of take what normally would be a really dangerous experience and kind of like Mm -hmm. make the risk manageable so that you can, there's always a margin of risk, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to die. None of my friends that are climbers want to die. We want to like safely have that experience. So it's, well, I I said that sounded like a slur, but the truth is like when I was a kid looking at these magazines and I think most people like when uh, the movie came out a few years ago of of Alex, uh, Handled, Honel, yeah, um, that was a good one. Most people, aside from thinking that these guys have like a screw loose, it's just yeah. plain inspiring to see people uh, achieve greatness. And yeah. it might take like a screw loose to to be the one to do some of that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's criticism. It's it's it, it's. Exp- I don't know. I think it's easy to cheer on, and most people get inspired when they see people do. 
you know, extreme sports would be the obvious example. These, yeah, whatever the, you know, the skateboarders or the, um, big wave surfers, whatever, whatever it is, it's, it's usually kind of like, you're like fist pumping when you see yeah. the, the latest <laughs> record go down. Uh, and God, this is certainly one of them. Can you imagine like seeing that back in the day when people had not like climbed it and the gear was so rough? Could you imagine like no, taking I mean, that on? That's kind of like, whew, I, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation, right? It is. Yeah. Just a rich history of like, yeah. I mean, the equipment was pretty bare bones. You see like the hall bags today, they're pretty full with like, yeah comforts and safety equipment they just had like these like marine rucksacks you know like like duffel bags yeah and they weren't even like half full they just had nothing you know they basically go up there for a week and not eat much and just yeah those are some those are some tough human beings for sure for sure (laughs) we'll probably have another have to have another conversation later to uh, really get into the other two things you have going on but let's at least touch them and that is you, you have a new, maybe it's not new, but you have a quite a project with this sailboat, um, on yeah. your hands. could you yeah. kind of give us the, at least paint the setting for that? And like I said, we'll get into the details or, or at least keep an eye on it as it moves yeah. along. But what, what yeah. is this project you're, you're involved with now? So I, I spent my early twenties living on a sailboat and, and kind of ended up working on sailboats for a job and traveling on them and. And I ended up buying this boat when I was like, it's like 27 or something. It's called a Bristol Channel Cutter. And it's just kind of been this like eternal project that I've been working on. I had no idea that, I mean, it takes tens of thousands of hours to like do it. And it's one of those skills that like, I feel so many skills on the internet have been, there's a lot of knowledge that's like been very accessible and you can kind of like, Mm-hmm. you know, go on YouTube and learn how to like sweat copper and put a boiler together. But like the boat building is still kind of mysterious and hard to like mm-hmm. get a lot of the tricks and, and methods. So mm. yeah, I've been working on this sailboat for, um, since I was in my mid twenties, I'm 44 now. Oh, wow. so so, this is not a new project. then. <laughs> no, this is not a new project. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty close to being done. Um, and then we, we sold our house, which had our shop there. And so it's wrapped in plastic outside as I build a new huh. shop where it will go and I can, I can finish it up. But is it, is it made of wood? It's a fiberglass hole. Um, and so I've been building it out from a bare hole. So doing all the interior work and putting a new engine in it, all the electrical and plumbing and all of that stuff. So holy smokes. So it's it's wrapped kind of at the moment until you get a new shop sort of to get back back into it. Yeah. I've been working on the shop for about a year and a half now. So I'm I'm getting closer, but is the shop pretty much going to be like a, what's a shop for boats? That's called a shipyard <laughs> is it is it pretty much designed for this project or is this, is this no, gonna be a shop for all sorts I, of stuff it's all sorts of stuff you know i like work woodworking and and working with metal and i mean my hope is is that the boat is not going to be there for decades that like it's something i can wrap up and and get that out and yeah. use it and and then have other things to to work on in there do you do you find 
I've, I've just kind of thinking these thoughts over the last week, but as I get older, not that I did a lot of extreme sports or hobbies when I was younger, but I did a lot more than I do now. And I yeah. do a lot more building and kind of workbench hobbies and these kind of things as I get older. And it, it seems like it might be kind of a natural, uh, move, you know, as your, as bodies age and risk tolerance, like drops down, you know, I got yeah. family, so I'm not really motivated to risk my life in the same way that I maybe did earlier. But, but anyways, building and learning things in that way is really satisfying and fun. Do you feel that a little bit? Uh, yeah, yourself? for sure. I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like you say, but like, I mean, I, I really enjoy like building things and learning new traits and skills and, you know, I love tools and just like, yeah. And I'd rather do that than most things, you know, like it's really fun to build. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's getting more intense and more intense as I get older. So yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid, I remember my dad would like, for my parents, my family, like work and play are like interchangeable because my parents love working so much. In fact, one of our like family, um, legend stories that my wife tells when we were like dating she came for that first christmas and and we were not married yet and my mom on christmas eve was like what should we do what should we do oh and she was really excited she's like i know let's go shovel some gravel at grandma's because we had there's a pile of gravel and she was she could not have been more serious because that's just kind of like what they do anyways yeah when you're a kid you just hate your life like doing things like that and now i gotta say i'm feeling a lot closer to that of like working with tools and kind of just building anything is as satisfying as, you know, some of the, I don't know, mountain biking or rafting or things that I would yeah. like really go out of my way to be involved with. I'm, I'm kind of less motivated to, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm getting just as much satisfaction out of, you know, tinkering around in the garage with a busted weed eater. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really think we're, as humans were designed to work, you know, and, and modernity kind of like modern life is like more sedentary and there's a lot of screens and mm-hmm. you, it's so specialized that, yeah, you, you don't get to fix, you know, most people don't get to like fix or build things for themselves. And, yeah. but I really feel like it adds an element of happiness that a lot of people are like searching for with, you know, working on computer screens and, and not working with their hands. I mean, I really, I think it adds a lot to, to life, you know, and I think you see it with, you know, the popularity of what you guys are doing and, um, the maker movement. And I mean, there's something there for sure. Yeah, it's true. You can, you can kind of get a taste for it just by watching and seeing it. And then, and a lot of people, that's what I feel like we have this like a tough thing where we're making videos about things but we would rather people go do them themselves but a lot of times then they'll just watch youtube <laughs> like myself if i get on youtube watching i'll, I'll like the night will just like fade away and i'm like yeah. oh, i should have gone out to the garage and done this or that um but po- your point stands that that there's just some real satisfaction in building things and maybe for i don't know 100 years ago humanity was not lacking for right needing to use hands and tools that that had been like the way for thousands of years that we yeah essential for survival yeah yeah Yeah. i i worked at an accounting job for a couple years and that was like it was a lot of work and we worked really hard long hours but it was misery because there was nothing it was like this compliance 
existence. Like you're just like looking back and doing people's taxes and making sure they did it right. Right. Not creating anything of value at sure. all. And whoa, it was, that was like the hard part of it. I think, I think even computer programmers are people who are making digital products, you know, the code yeah. or whatever, like they're still, that's still building and making and satisfying. Definitely. But, oh man, when you have just like a, a compliance life, like my accounting job, that's, that's something, that's something else. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of your guys's podcast. I think it's encouraging people to like move into that realm and helping them do a better job if, you know, they're trying to learn something or, yeah. um, it's really cool. Well, your, uh, your Instagram has pictures from the most recent, um, climb and maybe more uh, if I, if I went back deeper in it and there's a, yeah. there's a few pictures of your uh, sailboat, the motor looked just beautiful and shiny. Yeah. And I'm sure that's like, it's all kind of old news at now. So keep, keep putting pictures up on there. Cause yeah, I will. I'm hoping, uh, we'll, we'll link to your Instagram and I'm telling you guys, okay. if you haven't got the message, um, it's, it's almost like the most serious people who are getting the most done are oftentimes the most, I don't know, reserved and mellow and not making a big deal out of it. And I'm pretty sure that's what we got here called there. So oh, we're going to want to keep an eye on what you're up to next and make sure people, uh, are paying attention. So anything, well, anything I appreciate to, it. Yeah. Anything to leave the audience with, uh, well, like I said, we'll link to your Instagram. Is there anywhere else you're putting content out or anything? No, that's pretty much it. It's pretty minimal content, but um, <laughs> come take a look, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just Instagram. But Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time. I think we're going to be circling back here in a couple of years once the boat kind of um, gets on its home stretch. And, and in fact, uh, maybe one of these days if we're over in, uh, are you in Utah? Yeah, I'm in Utah. Okay. I'm in Mid- Midway, Utah, Midway. Okay. in Heber Valley. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If we're over there, I'll I'll swing by and and oh for and sure a closer look at that thing. And yeah, hey, can't come, thank you enough. Congrats on your successes in climbing. I I can't imagine the feeling of accomplishing a goal like that. I know you accomplished it at a young age, but you you still got to be pretty proud. No, it's I it's one of those bright spots in my life. Like I, yeah, what an opportunity and taught me so much and so grateful for it. All right, Calder, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it.